morning. Hey, we have eight baptisms today after this service, so that's exciting. Yes, it's a celebration when people get baptized, really excited about that. So hang around after service and celebrate with us outside as we celebrate those getting baptized. Hey, if you have a little bit of extra time on your hands and you enjoy cleaning, landscaping, or some general maintenance, we could use your help. So we're looking for volunteers to help with some of that. If you'll email Mark Ralph, his email is mark at go-newhope.com. So very easy, mark at go-newhope.com or just contact the office and we'll get you plugged in to that. Hey, uh, we're in like this mini-series right now called Foundations, which are the first five books of, of the Bible. In two weeks, we're going to begin um, the second mini-series to this overall series, This Is My Bible. And we're going to look at ordinary people with extraordinary stories. So you have all these names of different people, these next several books we're going to be looking at. And so it's going to be an incredible series. There's going to be other communicators as well, not just me. Give me a little bit of a break. And so it'll be nice throughout the rest of this year just to go through. We've been running through the Bible. We're beginning in Genesis. We're going to end in the book of Revelation, January through December, a different book every single week. We have these shirts. Check them out. This is my Bible. Aren't they cool? Grab you a shirt after service. They're out at guest services and help support This Is My Bible. We have all kinds of resources for you guys. When you walked in, you received what I just dropped. One of these, you received a, um, an overview, and on the back is an outline. These are also on our app. If you've downloaded our New Hope Eastlake app, you can click on the message there, and it has all this information. These overviews are kind of like little cheat sheets for you, give you an overview of the entire book, and then on the back are the message notes for the Sunday, um, for the Sunday message. So again, you can go to thisismybible.io, and it has all kinds of information, those overviews. Also, our Bible reading plan for those of you that are reading through the Bible in a year with us. So really appreciate everybody bringing their Bibles every week. It's so good to see hundreds and hundreds of people bringing their Bibles every week to church. It's such a blessing. Also, hey, if you have a story, maybe this series has been a blessing to you. We've heard countless stories of people that had never uh, read the Bible before, people that have never owned a Bible, or people that haven't read their Bible in a long time, and God's really doing a work in your life through this series, will you go to thisismybible.io, and there's a tab up there that says share your story. Will you share your story with us? Because we want to show some of these stories throughout the year of what God is doing in your life as a result of being in um, His Word. And if you follow our social media stuff, have you been watching our staff devotions? Have you been watching them? Yes, they're doing an amazing job. So follow all of our social media accounts because our staff throughout the week are doing devotions on the book that I taught on the previous week. So this week, Monday through Friday, they'll be doing devotions on the book of Numbers. Hey, have you ever seen the original vacation movie? Which, by the way, welcome everybody watching online. We have a growing audience online, and so thank you for joining us. You've seen the vacation, the original, not Christmas vacation. Have you seen the original vacation movie? Right? Clark, Ellen, Russ, and Audrey, right? You guys seen the, seen the movie, right? If you haven't, get out of here. Go watch the movie right now. It's a great movie. And you basically have this family that's based somewhere around Chicago in uh, Illinois, and they're going to take this family vacation, this journey to 
the promised land, right? To California. They're going to come to Southern California. They're going to go to, you remember? Wally World, which is probably Disneyland, right? And so this four or five day trip, you know, everybody packed in the old family truckster. Um, they're going to head across country and just have a great, easy, smooth, peaceful trip. Well, you know that it doesn't end up that way, right? They start on this journey. They're not even out of Illinois, and the teenagers already hate each other. Clark wrecks the family truckster. They lose all the luggage. He loses his credit cards. It's just an absolute mess. They get lost multiple times. Uh, downtown St. Louis, they get lost. And then remember, they, they stop to go to their, their family's house, or cousin's house, in I think it's Kansas or Nebraska or something, and they go meet up with who? You remember? Uncle Eddie, right? Uncle Eddie's the best. So they go meet up with Uncle Eddie, and lo and behold, they end up having to transport their aunt to Arizona. And you know what happens along the way, right? The aunt dies. The aunt dies. And so they did the most logical thing because nobody wants to sit by a dead body, so they strap her to the top of the car, the family truckster. I mean, it never rains in Arizona, right? And so they have her strapped, taking her to Arizona, and it just rains and pours, and you know the story. So they're traveling, continuing to travel across the country. They finally get to the promised land. They finally get to California. And they go and they park, and they have front row parking, and they're like, this is amazing. And they get up to Wally World, and it is closed. It's closed. And then things get worse, right? Because of more decisions um, that they make. Well, welcome to the book of Numbers. I've just explained to you the book of Numbers. I can go backstage and go to my office and go home and watch football. The, this is the book of Numbers. You have a group of people, the Israelites. They've been rescued from Egyptian bondage. Moses is their leader. He's Clark, right? He's going to take them across this region into this land that God had promised Abraham, the promised land. This journey is supposed to be about an 11-day journey. And this 11-day journey turns in to 40 years, 38 years, 10 months to be exact. And it is nothing but utter chaos. Very little goes according to plan. Problem after problem. And they finally get to the edge of the promised land. And God tells them, no, you're not going in. It's closed. It's a story of vacation. Turn the Numbers chapter 1. We're going to look at the historical content of this book. We're going to look at key people, key events, and then we're going to close out with the life applicational component of this book. This book, of course, is written by Moses, as were the first five books of the Bible. They're called the books of Moses. They're called the Torah, which means law, or they're called the Pentateuch, which means the five books or the five uh, tools, the five useful tools. And so every Jew would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. Um, they would have known the law of their people, of what God had for them. The book of Numbers comes from the name, derives itself from the two census that are in the book of Numbers. You have chapters 1 through 25. We have 
the first generation of people who were rescued from Israel in chapters 26 through 36. You have the second generation of people that have left Israel, this next generation that are coming on. It's really sad and it's tragic that there are two census. Because the first census, we have one number. The second census, we have another number. And it's tragic. And you'll find out why um, here in just a little bit. Right now, as we get into the book of Numbers, they are based out of Mount Sinai. They've spent time encamped at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And the first nine chapters of the book of Numbers, God is preparing them for this journey to the promised land. Now remember, this is so important. God has promised them this land. It's their land. God says it's yours. I'm going before you. I'm preparing the way. And when you get there, take the land. It's yours. God already, already promised them that it's their land. If only things were that easy. So let's look at some key people and some key events. The key people, Moses. Obviously, he's the leader of the children of Israel. Aaron is Moses' brother. He's a priest. Miriam is the sister of Moses. They were reunited. Then you have Korah in chapter 16 leads a revolt along with a lot of others against Moses' leadership. And you'll find out what happens to them. Joshua is one of the 12 spies that Moses sends to scope out the promised land. Joshua in chapter 27 um, Moses would actually pray over Joshua because Joshua would be Moses' replacement as the leader. Caleb is another one of the spies sent out by Moses. He was able to enter the promised land. We'll see that only two from this first generation were able to enter the promised land. And then we're introduced to the 12 tribes of Israel in this letter as well. So Numbers chapter 1 Verses 1 through 4. We're going to look at the first major event, which is the first census, and our introduction to the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 1. One day in mid-spring, during the second year after Israel's departure from Egypt. So this is two years after they've been rescued from the land of Egypt. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle, in the wilderness of Sinai. This is where they're encamped right now. And he said, take a census of the whole community of Israel by their clans and families. List the names of all the men, 20 years and older, who were able to go to war. You and Aaron are to direct the project, assisted by one family leader from each tribe. And this is where we'll get this introduction to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the Levites are not included in this census because God has entrusted them to take care of the tabernacle. They're to erect, take down. Remember, this is a mobile church. They took it wherever they, they went. And so they were in charge of this portable church. And if you're reading the Bible with us through in a year, and you're reading all these names and all these numbers, unless you're an accountant, it probably drives you crazy, right? You're just like, oh, can I just skip over all of these names and these tribes and these clans and all these people and all the numbers, God numbers all of them. It's, it's, it's interesting. Gives them all, they all have names and families and groups that they're a part of. You might say, why in the world is this in the Bible? 
Like, why is this important? Why do we need to know all the names and the numbers and the families and, the, and all of the, like, why, how, why is this relevant? This is so boring to read all of this stuff. Well, remember, these names are not important unless you're one of those names. Remember, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They had no identity. They had no rights. They meant nothing. They were foreigners in a foreign land. And they were basically just a number. And now God's giving them an identity. He's making them into a nation. And God wants them to know that they belong. That their families belong. That their names are important. And such is the case with us. It's an incredible thing to think that the God of this universe who created every single one of us is concerned about every detail of our life. When you begin to feel unimportant or like you don't matter, remember that God knows you by name. God knows and God cares about every single detail of your life. Other people might not, but God does. And that's an incredible thing. We are an individual to God. I love this quote that I put in your notes from St. Augustine. It's one of my favorite quotes. It says, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Isn't that beautiful? That is so beautiful. So God has Moses count and organize all the people. Why? God counts the people because the people count. And this is important. So over the next couple of chapters, chapters 2 and 3, God organizes them. And they're getting ready to head out on this journey. Well, how are they going to get there? How are they going to know where to go? Turn to chapter 9. Beginning in verse 15, it says, The tabernacle was set up. This is what the Levites would do. And on the day... The cloud covered it. Then from the evening until morning, the cloud was over the tabernacle. It appeared to be a pillar of fire. This was the regular pattern. At night, the cloud was changed to the appearance of fire. When the cloud lifted from over the sacred tent, the people of Israel followed it. And whenever the cloud settled, the people of Israel camped. In this way, they traveled at the Lord's command and stopped where the Lord told them to. Then they remained there as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. If the cloud remained over the tabernacle for a long time, the Israelites stayed for a long time, just as the Lord had commanded. Everything's going smooth so far. This is amazing. That God guided his people. There was a cloud by day, and when the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. And at night, the cloud turned into a pillar of fire by night. Remember, they're in the desert. And so a cloud during the day would have been nice relief from the sun. And desert gets cold at night. And so this pillar of fire would have been nice warmth at night for them. You see, God cares about every detail. And God directs them and guides them and leads them along this path. And it's an incredible thing. Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be the most amazing thing if God did that for us? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be amazing if God would punch into our G GPS 
when this happens in life, turn here. Hey, Rick, when you encounter this or when this problem comes, Rick, do this. Wouldn't it be amazing when we get to this intersection, God said, go left, don't go straight, don't go right, go left. Wouldn't that be incredible? Well, you might not realize, but we do have a navigational system. It's called the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of, I guess, misunderstanding of what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is. But the Holy Spirit has two basic functions. The first one is the Holy Spirit is God's presence in our lives. The second purpose of the Holy Spirit is to lead us, to guide us, to direct us. And so it's God's GPS system in our lives. The first nine chapters of the book of Numbers takes place at the base of Mount Sinai, and they're being prepared, right? They're packing up the family truckster. They're loading everything on top, putting everything in the back, and they're getting ready to move to the promised land. Again, this trip should take about 11 days. Look in chapter 10, verse 11. One day in mid-spring, during the second year of Israel's departure from Egypt, the cloud lifted, that means it's time to move, from the tabernacle of the covenant. So the Israelites set out from the wilderness of Sinai and traveled on in stages until the cloud stopped in the wilderness of Paran. The wilderness of Paran is where they're at, and they don't like it. They're not happy campers, even though this is a place where God has for them to go. It was desolate. It was barren. It was rocky. Look in verse 1. The people began to what? What does your Bible say? Began to what? Underline that word. Circle that word. Because you're going to see that this is a common theme on this journey. That the people would complain non-stop. And it would have massive implications on this journey. They began to complain to the Lord about their hardships. And when the Lord heard them, because the Lord hears us, His anger blazed against them. Listen, God doesn't always take us where we want to go, but it doesn't mean that we're not exactly where God wants us. And sometimes we have to camp in a desolate area. Sometimes we have to be in a place of need or a place of want in order for us to get to the place that God has for us. Anybody ever been there before? You've gone through a time in the desert, a time that was barren, a time that was rocky, a time that was difficult, but you have to be there in order to get to where God wants you to be. And this was the case with the Israelites. In chapter 11, verse 4, we see more of this. The foreign rabble, this would have been those that were part Egyptian and part Jewish. They were traveling with the Israelites. They began to crave the good things of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? They were slaves, but isn't it amazing how when you get further removed from a difficult situation, a lot of times it doesn't seem as bad as it was? And the people of Israel began to what? Complain. Here's that word again. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember all the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt. 
We had all the cucumbers and melons and onions and garlic that we wanted, and now our appetites are gone, and day after day, we have nothing to eat but this manna. God, we are sick and tired of what you're providing for us. It's not enough. We're tired of the manna. Remember at the beginning of Exodus, they complained because they're hungry, and so what does God do? He provides manna. They didn't have to do anything. All they had to do was wake up. And every day they woke up, God had fresh manna, like these honey wafers that he provided for them every single day. They didn't have to toil. They didn't have to hunt. They didn't have to do anything. It was there. Isn't it amazing how sometimes when God blesses and God provides and God provides, when sometimes once God has provided, it's not enough for us? God, you provided this, but I deserve this. God, you provided this, but I would rather have this. So much so that they would rather, they literally tell God this, we'd rather just be back in Egypt. So stinking dramatic. Are you kidding me? You'd rather be slaves than to go to the promised land that's flowing with milk and honey? We have seen this over and over through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now in Numbers. And what we've seen is this. When we decide that we're smarter than God, when we are not content with what God has provided and what God has done, when we think that our way is better than God's way, it leads to trouble every single time. We saw it in Genesis We've seen it in Exodus, we saw it in Leviticus, that when we think we're, we know better than God, the God who created us, when we know what's better for us than God does, it gets us into big trouble. This can be scary, because sometimes God will give you what you ask for. You want to be independent of God? We don't want what God's providing? God says, you want meat? Oh, I'll give you meat. Is that what you want? Yes. We're sick and tired of manna. Okay, I'm going to give you exactly what you asked for. And how many of you know that can be a scary proposition? When we think we know better than God's will, when we think we know better than God's plan, when we think we know better than what God has provided for us. Look in verse 18, chapter 11. Tell the people to purify themselves. For tomorrow, oh, you want meat? You will have meat. Tell them the Lord has heard their, I love this, whining and complaining. Don't you love God? He, God? God has heard their whining and complaining. If only we had meat to eat. Surely we'd be better off in Egypt. Really? Are you serious? Really? You honestly think that you're better off as a slave than going to the promised land? And now the Lord will give you meat, and you will have meat to eat. And it won't just be for a day, or two, or five, or ten, or twenty. You want meat? I'll give you meat. You will eat it for a month until you gag, until you're sick. Anybody have a parent like that? You are not leaving this table until you finish what's on that plate. Anybody have a parent like that? I know if you're under 30, you never had a parent like that. But if you're over 30, you have, right? Yes. Praise God. Maybe not. 
Notice what the Lord says. For you have rejected the Lord. Because when we reject what God provides and who God provides, we're rejecting the Lord. Who here, who is here among you? And you've complained to him. Why did we ever leave Egypt? God is hearing all the rumblings that they're complaining to each other over and over and over again. In verses 31 through 35, God gives them quail. As far as the eye could see, quail coming up from the ocean. The Lord provided a wind in verse 31, and he brought them all the quail that they could handle. As far as they could see, they had quail. It was flying three foot above, so they could easily grab, and everybody grabbed at least five bushels of quail, and they ate, and they ate, and they ate, because what God provided was not good enough. And so they got what they asked for, and it made all of them sick. God knew what he was doing, and many of them died because the quail contained disease. Isn't it amazing how oftentimes we know better than God? God, what you've provided is not enough. And so God says, I'm going to give you what you want. We have a free will. And sometimes God lets us choose. Oftentimes, He does. God, I don't like the spouse you provided for me. I could do much better on my own. Oh, really? God, this job is not enough. I deserve better. I'll take it from here. God, I know the Bible tells me to tithe and to be generous with my finances and my stuff, but you know, I, I, I think I'll handle my finances on my own. Thank you. I don't need you. When we supersede God's will and what we know God's plan is, it never, ever works out. And as they continue to travel, they arrive at the edge of the promised land. In chapter 13, Moses sends out spies. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, send men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I'm giving you. Notice giving, it's past tense. It's all, I'm giving you this land, it's done, I've given it to you, it's, it's over. Go take the land, go and spy out this land, send a leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded, and he sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp into the wilderness of Paran. And these were the tribes and the names of the leaders, and he lists them all. And then Moses instructs them in verse 25 through 33 to bring me a report. Let me know what's going on in this land. Is it as beautiful as God told us? Is it flowing with milk and honey? Is the land fertile? What do the people look like? How's it defended? All of those things. Bring back a report. And they bring back a report for sure. Verse 25, it says, After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses. We're in chapter 13, verse 25. To the people of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. And they reported to the whole community and they, uh, to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit that they'd taken from the land. The Bible says that they took a bushel of grapes and they had to carry it between two men on poles. It was so abundant. And this is the report. We arrived in the land that you sent to us. And indeed, indeed, it is magnificent. It's everything that God said that it would be. It's a land that is flowing with milk and honey. That's a metaphor for it's a very fruitful 
a very fertile, beautiful, abundant land. It's everything that God said that it would be. And they brought back some of the fruit as a report. But then look at how their attitudes change. There's a big but in verse 28. A big but. A but that would change everything for the children of Israel. Listen to what they say. The people there are powerful. Their cities and towns are fortified and large. We also saw descendants of Anak who are living there. In other words, there's giants in the land. The Amalekites live in Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the, Amor- and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, along with the Jordan Valley. In other words, they're, they're, they're discouraged, they're powerful, they're big. But look at what Caleb says. I love Caleb. He tried to encourage the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go. Let's take the land. We certainly can conquer it. Caleb. And you'll find out in chapter 14 that Joshua is with him. And saying, yes, two out of the ten are saying, let's do. Let's obey. Let's do what God has told us to do. The message today is a foundation of obedience. And it's just do what God tells us to do. And Joshua and Caleb, two out of the ten, come back and say, let's take this land. I don't care how big they are. I don't care how mighty they are. Let's take the land. And you'll see a map. It's interesting that when they bring back this report, ten people influence millions because they were scared. And so as a result, they're on the edge of the promised land. You see there at the top where the red ends at Kadesh. And because of their disobedience, because of their complaining, because of their lack of faith, God tells them, you will not enter the promised land. Wally World is closed. Instead, you're going to go on a journey where the purple starts. You're going to go on a journey and you're going to die in the wilderness. And not one of you, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, will be allowed entrance into the promised land. And the reason why there's a second census in chapter 26 is because God makes them wander in the wilderness until the entire first generation of I can't people die off. And so the second census is taken, and those are the ones that are going to be able to enter the promised land. In chapter 20, the people complain again, and they want water. And so God instructs Moses to go and speak to a rock. But instead of speaking to the rock, Moses is frustrated and angry at the people. They're constantly complaining. They're questioning him. There's a revolt, even from his own family, against him. And instead of doing what God told him to do, Moses strikes the rock. And because of this, God does not allow even Moses into the promised land. As a matter of fact, Joshua would take over for him, and he would lead them into the promised land. Chapter 21 Surprise, surprise, the people begin to do what again? Complain. And God sends snakes into their camp. And many of them are bitten. 24,000 die. And then God, they, hear, they cry out to God. And God, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God tells Moses to take a bronze serpent, put it on the end of a pole, and to lift up that pole. And everybody that looks at that pole will be healed. It's interesting that Kind of the logo for medical practice is a snake on a, on a pole. It's interesting, too, that Jesus said in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. 
so that everyone that believes in him will have eternal life. So everybody that looked at that, this is a foreshadow of Jesus, a foreshadow of Messiah, that everybody that looks to Jesus will be healed. And then chapters 22 to 25, we have the story of Balaam. This is a very strange story. Balaam is mentioned more in the Bible than the mother of Jesus, Mary. It's interesting. The Bible mentions this story of Balaam, who's a Mesopotamian Baru, basically like an oracle. Um, he was like an oracle-speaking priest. And there was a local king named, ba named Balak who knew that the Israelites were approaching and had heard the stories of the miracles that God had done for them. And he was scared, and so he goes and he hires Balaam to put a curse on the Israelites. Balaam starts on this journey to head, to, uh, even though he said he's not going to curse them, but he's going to go with them. And he ends up, he's on this trail with his donkey, and his donkey sees an angel of the Lord to prevent him from going. And uh, Balaam ends up beating up his donkey, and then God speaks to the donkey, and the donkey able, is able to talk to Balaam. It's a you should read it. It's a crazy story. I tell you, read your Bible. It's amazing. And what's crazier is that Balaam talks back to his donkey and they have a conversation. Now, before you think that's too crazy, I've heard many of you talking to your animals like they're people. And so, come on now. Come on. Some people treat their animals better than they treat people. Anyways, uh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Chapter 26, they take the second census. The first census, there's 603,550 able men over 20 able to fight. In the second census, chapter 26, verse 51, there's 601,730 for a net loss of 1,820. Now, after several years, you would think the population would grow, but it didn't. It declined. Why? Because God is waiting for this entire first generation to die off because of their lack of faith and they're not going to be able to enter the promised land. Chapter 27, Moses anoints Joshua. He will be his successor. The rest of the book closes out with dividing up the land, with the people. And the book ends in chapter 36 as they wander and wander in the promised land. These are the commands, verse 13, and regulations that the Lord gave to the people of Israel through Moses while they are camped in the plains of Moab beside the Jordan River across from Jericho. This is going to be a cool story. Next week, we'll look at the book of Deuteronomy that rehashes a lot of what we read, but there's some really cool stories. And then we'll get into the book of Joshua and we'll watch them march in Jericho. So what lessons can we learn from this book and then... We're finished. Three lessons that each of us can learn. Life applicational components to the book of Numbers. The first one is this. Complaining is toxic. I'm going to say that again. Complaining is toxic. And it does nothing but hinder God's best in our lives. If you've been here very long, you've heard me say this. I avoid, avoid like a plague, complaining people. Because it's never good enough. It's about control. They're never willing usually to be a part of the solution. They only want to point out what they don't like. The older I get, the less time I have for people that constantly complain. It's toxic. It's a toxic trait. And if you're the type of person that just, you always see the negative in everything. 
and there can be a million good things going on and you only see the bad thing. That's a toxic trait and it will keep you from God's best in your life. Your attitude determines your altitude. And we see this with the children of Israel that they complained over and over and over again. And what you'll realize is that it never helps. It never helps them, ever. It's never productive. It's never good. And I understand we all have bad days. We all go through seasons. And sometimes we do need to get stuff off our chest. But you know the difference between that and between somebody that's looking to kick you while you're down. Somebody that's looking to pile on to your problems and your issues and to just rain on your sunshiny day. I avoid people like that and I would encourage you to do the same. And if you're that type of person, instead of seeing the good, that all that God is doing, and you only focus on the negative things, you're probably limiting God's power in your life. Because the Bible says in the book of Numbers that this complaining angered God. It angered Him. Because of their lack of faith, their lack of obedience, none of them entered the promised land. Isn't it amazing? Because of their constant complaining, they missed out on this incredible blessing that God had for them. They turned an 11-day journey into 40 years of wandering, and none of their complaining helped. You don't like your neighbor? Try being kind instead of just constantly complaining. You don't like your marriage? Improve yourself instead of pointing out the flaws of your partner. Complaining brings toxicity into any environment. Don't be a complainer. Bring solutions. Leaders bring solutions. And do you know what the antidote to complaining is? Be thankful. Live a life of gratitude. Everybody goes through difficulties. Everybody has frustrations. Are we going to focus on the blessings or are we going to allow the difficulties to bury us? The Bible says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messengers who bring good news and peace and salvation. Isn't that amazing? The Bible says, blessed are those that bring good news, that bring peace, that build people up. They bring salvation. That's what God says, that God blesses those that bring this message of encouragement. Who wants to be around people who constantly look for an opportunity to reign on your party? And we see these two men, Joshua and Caleb. It said Caleb tried to encourage everybody. But the ten overruled the two, which leads to the second lesson that we can learn from this book, and that's this. Our attitude is contagious. For better or for worse, it's contagious. It's an amazing how a positive attitude, a positive mindset, an attitude of gratitude can change your work environment. It can change your home environment. It can change your church. It can change your marriage. It can change a lot of stuff. We attract what we are. Be an encourager. In chapter 13, verse 27, it was everything that God said that it would be. It was everything. It was magnificent. It was flowing with milk and honey. And yet all they see is the negativity. 
and they begin to influence other people, the Bible says. Our attitude determines our, our, our altitude. And if we're constantly around people that hold us back and that say, I can't, instead of God can or I can, then we're in deep trouble. An attitude of fear, lack of faith, not being obedient to God, it kept an entire generation from God's blessings. Majority rules in this country, but the majority isn't always right. Matter of fact, very rarely is the majority right. Surround yourself with dreamers. Surround yourself with big thinkers. Surround yourself with people that believe that God can and that you can. It's important. All of these people missed out on the promised land because of negativity, because of I can't thinking. Lastly, the third lesson that we can learn is that God's power is greater than our problems. Chapter 13, verse 28, and then verses 31 to 33, they're talking about how powerful all of the people are. They're talking about how big they are, how strong they are, how mighty they are. And they made one fatal mistake, and we often do the same thing. They compared the hurdles, the obstacles, the other people to themselves and their own abilities or inabilities. They didn't compare them to their God. You see, when we encounter difficulties and frustrations and struggles and, 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 and hiccups in life, when we compare them to our, to our own ability to tackle that or to take care of that situation, yeah, it might be insurmountable from our standpoint. But the Bible says nothing is impossible with God. Do you realize how powerful God can be in our lives? Do any of us realize how powerful God can be in our lives? I don't know that we do. The Bible says nothing is impossible with God. I can't pay my bills. God is bigger. I've been diagnosed with a disease. God is bigger. I'm struggling with this addiction. God is bigger. I can't find my soulmate. I'm tired of being alone. God is bigger. My marriage is an absolute wreck. God is bigger. I've made mistakes and I have a lot of regrets in my life. God is bigger. When we compare our problems or our issues to ourselves, they'll probably fall short. We'll probably fall short. But we have to stop comparing difficulties to ourselves and start comparing them to God. The Bible says, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Because it's not about who we are or are not. It's about whose we are. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the book of Numbers. The valuable lessons that we see in this letter. And God, I pray for each person here today. Lord, it's amazing how our mindset can keep us from your best. We see a perfect illustration of this with the children of Israel. God, when we only focus on the bad and we complain about what we don't like and what you haven't provided or we think that we should provide or you should provide or what we deserve or don't deserve, God, oftentimes that distracts us from your purpose and it limits your power in our lives. God, help us to be can-do people. People that just obey and believe that you can do anything through us. 
God, help us to dream big, to think big, to believe big. And Father, when we're in relationships or when we're around other people, help us to bring good news, not discouraging news. Help us to build people up, not tear people down. Help us to offer solutions and not just point out problems. And God, if there are people that struggle with their attitudes, I pray that right now that you would bring healing to that and that they would surrender it to you. And God, I pray for people that might be up against something and they have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring. It seems insurmountable. It seems too big of a hill to climb. And God, when we compare those problems to us, it probably is too big. But when we compare it to you, nothing is impossible with you. And so, Father, if there are some difficulties that people are dealing with, I pray that they would give them to you and not try to handle them by themselves, but do it in your power and your strength. Apostle Paul said, when I'm weak, then I am strong. When I'm depending upon God, then I'm mighty. Father, thank you so much for your word today. Bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.